a handout if you want or need to take notes. The message is called the Stewards of the Oracles. Romans 3 is, uh, is continuing the development of a, of a special, very special line of argument in the, in the New Covenant age, in, in this time where we have been brought to a place of, we know who the Messiah is, the Messiah has been born and has come, and he preached. And he spread the news of the gospel by his apostles and by the churches. And this letter was written to the Christians in Rome. And we're at a point in this discussion where there's some very special people in consideration, the, the, the Jewish Christians and, and in some senses the non-Christian Jews who are being confronted with a gospel argument here is, is what we're going to be considering. So I'm going to read to you uh, verses 1 to 8. Romans chapter thir- uh, 3, verses 1 to 8. Let's read this together. And then uh, I'll explain to you how, how Paul is, is compelling them at this point. It says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God for what if some did not believe whether unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect certainly not indeed let God be true but every man a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may be overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So, as you recall, just look up, a, a tiny bit there in your Bible into the very end of chapter 2. See verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Or in other words, Paul is trying to make sure that 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 people are taught to consider the difference between the, the person who is a Jew inwardly and a person who was born a Jew. The one who was born a Jew kind of claims his Jewishness through his heritage via Abraham and by the males being circumcised according to the covenant given with Abraham. So the <clears throat> the end of chapter 2 was speaking along these lines, speaking about who is not a Jew, who is one outwardly, who is not circumcised, who is 
circumcised merely outward in the flesh, verse 29, but is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter. Paul's being very careful now. We're kind of getting into some some depths of of our faith. What, what do we believe about man? What do, what do we believe about a person who can rightly call themselves a Christian who has been rightly or properly transformed by the Spirit. There's something that must take place on the inward part of a person is what he's beginning to explain in the end of chapter 2. The Jew is one inwardly. The Jews boast, of course, is that God is their God. God has made them, the Jews, his people. It is a great source of their pride. It's their identity. It's how they know themselves. They are the people who have received the promises of God and the covenants of God and have his favor. But Paul is making this distinction. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. And that final phrase there is an important thing. It really is important for you to understand that God's praise of men, God's acceptance of men is something that has taken place between men and God. It's, it's not something that is outward. Going to church isn't what makes him praise you. There's got to be something going on on the inward part of a man that is either praiseworthy or that is going to be the reason of their condemnation. And so he goes on to explain really the last section of the bad news so that men, so that you and I can properly understand the good news of the gospel. So chapter 2 ends forcefully asserting that the one who is called a Jew has no hope of avoiding the charge of offending God. He has no hope of escaping the wrath of God by his Jewishness. That's how chapter 2 has ended. His inability to live in harmony with the conscience is one of the first things we noticed in all that we've read to this point, right? There's a certain manifestation of God has been manifest to them and they know those key things about the deity of God, the eternality of God, right? This is in their conscience and they can't even obey the simple law represented by their, in their conscience. In other words, although they knew him as God, what does it say in the first part of Romans? It didn't glorify him, nor give him thanks. How did, how did they know about him? What To what were they responsible to give glory? Or, or why were they responsible? Their conscience had been manifested, this, this declaration of the eternality and the deity of God. And they couldn't obey this simple, simple rule. They didn't, and they wouldn't. And then, as the argument advances through Romans, then it goes a little bit further and says, you don't keep the law either. The written law, you don't keep. You boast in it. You rest in it, but you don't keep it. You brag on it. You teach it to other people, but you don't keep it. So you you have no grounds. You, You have no standing. And finally, one of the points made is that this person actually shames God. They shame God because they're called the people of God and yet they don't live anything like him. They, they, don't, they don't speak like him. They don't act like him. They don't have the dignity of him. They don't have the righteousness of him. They shame him. 
So this person shames God. The, the Jew in the end of chapter 2 shames God by giving ammunition to the observing world and then the world watching and looking at these people. They say, God's people are all hypocrites. They don't, they don't look anything like him. They don't sound anything like him. What kind of God has a people like that that brings shame to him? And so the Jew is told and, and it's asserted that his security, his, his hope for this great standing that he believes is his before God, it has no basis because his life is actually a constant uh, rebellion against God's law. He cannot do what he says he is. Isn't it interesting? He cannot do what he says he is. His own concept, his own sense of his security and his favor. Remember it said in in chapter 2, he rests in the law. His boast is in God and he rests in the law. And they don't understand the point that they are going to be judged according to their deeds. This is one of the repeated statements that that we're running into in chapter 2. Their deeds, the things you do, are going to say what you believe. And you're going to be judged on this basis, Mr. and Mrs. Jew. Um, look at verse uh, chapter 2, verse 25 again. Look at how he put it. He says, circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. Or in other words, if you do what circumcision means, then, then you will be justified. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You're a failure at keeping the law. Look again now at verse 29. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is out of the heart. In the spirit. Not in the letter. Whose praise is not from men, but from God. You realize that the gospel, the gospel is something that tells you where you stand before the eternal God. You. If, if, if you don't have faith in the righteousness of Christ, then you are lost. If you have faith in the crucified and risen Christ, and you stand in the righteousness of Christ, you stand justified in Christ. Christian faith, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a very, very personal thing for you to contemplate one by one, isn't it? It is something for you to understand in terms of your unrighteousness, your need for righteousness, your need for a Savior. It's between you and God. It's something that's happening on the inside of a man. And that is part of the main point that's being made here. So what is the advantage of being a Jew? What is the advantage of being a Jew? These these Jews here are being called liars. They're being said, you have no standing before God. You are, you are facing the wrath of God. What is the advantage of being a Jew is, is the question that begins chapter 3 here. It's not simply your birthright. Your birthright hasn't given you salvation. That's not the advantage of being a Jew. Being saved isn't the advantage of of being a Jew. Wrath is coming against you if that is all you have is is a relationship to Abraham. And so the error that that this nation 
and that much of humanity has taken on. The, The error that men say, well, because of who I have been born or where I have been born. This is why I have security. In in Thailand, I realized that a Thai is born a Buddhist, right? You're born a Buddhist. And and they know Americans are born Christians. In in Italy, people are born Catholics probably. This this is how culture works, right? But what we need to realize is that There's one truth governing the world. And where you're born doesn't make you something. What you think and what's going on in your heart and how you live your life according to this thing going on in your mind and in your heart, that is what you are. Being told you are not the object of God's love and salvation when you think you are is brutally offensive and is really difficult to believe. Think about the Jews who for generations have held their security in their relationship to Abraham. They've held their confidence in their relationship to Abraham and in the law that came from Moses and they're being told that none of that stuff is doing you any good before the Creator. Think of how that just shakes your foundation. Think of how that makes you just utterly insecure or furious because whoever it is has had the audacity to tell you you are completely wrong. This puts them in a very, very precarious situation. It's hard for them to believe. And one of the things that that I know you will know is true is that being insulated from the claims of gospel truth isn't rare. In other words, for someone to hear the truth of the gospel begin to crack the outer shell and and that person to resist it and to be offended by it, that's not a rare thing. That's the most normal thing. And Paul is working on this. He's, He's beginning to beat on them. And he senses an argument that says something along the lines of this. Paul, if Jews are like Gentiles... In their unrighteousness, and Abraham's favor is not our salvation, then what was the point of God's covenant favor? What was the point of God making us the Jews? What what does it all mean anyways? If we're just as bad, if we're just as guilty, if we're just as hell-bound as all the Gentiles, what is the point? What is the point of God's covenant favor? What advantage has the Jew? What benefit is there in circumcision? This is the question. This is, this is where Paul knows they've gone. And then he begins to answer. See, Paul, Paul voices one side of the argument and then he voices the other side of the argument because right away he says much in every way, doesn't he? Right away he says, what is the advantage? Much. There's huge advantage in every way. And then he uses the word chiefly. And and from what I read in the commentators, multiple people make a reference to this. This word chiefly means like the main top reason. It it doesn't mean a a big reason. It means the, the thing. It is the main thing. It's the number one thing is this. 
which kind of means it's just a fact. It's not an opinion. It's not kind of like a great thing as opposed to bad. This is the thing. The chief advantage is unto them were committed the oracles of God. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Under the Jews have been entrusted the oracles of God. Now the Jew is supposed to hear that and you and I are supposed to hear that as this is the main thing. This is the greatest thing about being a Jew. This is what they were to understand. The word oracles shows up, I believe, four times in the New Testament. One of the times that you would probably remember, you would actually find in Numbers 23 and number, uh, Numbers 24, where Balaam, the prophet, speaks the oracles of God. So you'll remember that story is that, that the king Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel because this man would give oracles. We could also maybe say prophetic words, prophecy. Let's look at Acts 7 and see how it's used there. Acts 7, verse 37 to 39. I'll show you a couple references in the New Testament of this word oracles here. Acts 7 and verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. What is the living oracles that the people of Israel had received? What does that mean? The living oracles. What does that mean? What was it they received? The words of God. The words of God were spoken to them. They were directed to them. They were given instruction and direction. I'll read you also Hebrews 5.12. And then I'm going to look at 1 Peter 4. Hebrews 5.12 uses this word as well. Unto the Jew has been entrusted... The oracles, Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Hebrew Christians needed help growing to greater degrees of spiritual maturity by being taught the oracles of God. These are the words of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Some oracles are, are easy to contemplate and consume and some are difficult. But the words of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4 is an instruction on how Christians are to be using their, their gifts among the body of Christ. 1 Peter 4.11 says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's how, how Christians should speak to another Christian. We should be speaking the very words of God to one another. The oracles are God's words. There are two other words in the ancient world that, that referred to 
this idea of what this oracle is, of what an oracle is. This particular one, this word oracle, is the word logia. And the only reason I'm saying the Greek word to you is because you have probably heard the word logos. You remember the word logos? That's the word word. And in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos. That, that Greek word logos means word. This, this word is the same root word, but it's the logia. And so what are the oracles of God? Literally, it is the word of God. The logia are the word of God that have been entrusted to the Jews. You and I understand value in being entrusted with something proportionally to the status of the one who has given you the trust. Kings, movie stars, musical performers, high-ranking politicians are often so admired that any request that they would make of people around them and the world around them, anything that they would ask those people to hold for them or to do for them, they would do um, almost in, in, in a silly manner. Like they'd be so happy that they'd been asked by somebody important to hold something for them and to do something for them. They feel it's an honor when somebody like that asks them to to do something. So we should, and the Jews should, understand that when Paul has said your chief, your 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 chief advantage in your Jewishness, the greatest advantage in your Jewishness is to have received the oracles of God. They should they should hear that and understand that that the greatest being in the universe, the creator of the world, the maker of nations, has entrusted us, has given us the duty of holding and keeping the oracles of God. That that should be heard and understood and, and reverenced in this way. One way to measure the worth of carrying the oracles of God would be to look at individuals or at generations who are tending to the oracles of God or who are ignoring the oracles of God. In other words, I want to help give an example out of the scriptures that that those who had done so well were blessed and much advantaged in their stewarding of God's oracles. But then those who had neglected and ignored that stewardship experienced cursing and want. So let me just share with you what I mean by this in Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 and then verse 3 I'll read it to you you can make a note to yourself but I'm going to move a little bit quickly through a couple of verses here Nehemiah 8 3 is a time when the people had returned to Jerusalem and and they had begun doing some of the restoration of, of the city there 
and they they uh, did a rededication. They took some time to to read the law and hadn't done so in many years. And so Nehemiah eight three says, then he read from it the law in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. So he he read for hours from the law of God before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And now I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. They had built a special little podium for him. And when he opened it, the law, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And so what I want you to notice that as as Israel took advantage of what was in their hands in terms of being stewards of the oracles of God, it gave it gave power to the people for this revival. It gave them joy in being able to hear the law and it turned into their praise of God. We also find the opposite thing taking place in the book of Amos. So there's a, an example of a, of a people being full of joy and blessing in their utilizing of the oracles of God. But Amos 8.11 speaks of a curse, a curse promise for the, the rebellion of the people. So how is it that God would curse a people in rebellion to him. Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So a curse pronounced on men is understood in, in the word being taken away from them. They wouldn't be able to hear it anymore. So this truth that they had been entrusted with God, God's word carries truths of blessing and truths of cursing. The, the word shows the way to blessing. The word shows the way to find cursing. It, it shows both things. It's like a map in that sense, if you will, right? It carries honor and trust in that it's been entrusted to them by God. It has, there's a great dignity in being the people who, who have been given this honor. And so the Jew is the steward. Listen, the Jew had become the steward of the plan and the working out of redemption. If anybody in the world wanted to know what that was, they would have to go to the Jew to find it. And some people joined themselves to the Jewish nation. That's where they could find it. From Genesis to Malachi, their prophets and their priests and their kings held the oracles where revelation of God's promises and curses could be found in, in, in perfect distinction. That's where it could be found and that was the only place it could be found on planet Earth. How to seek the Lord. How to appease God. How to hope in God. What is the hope that God offers to men? These things are found in the oracles of God. Let me read to you. I'm just going to uh, read a couple of these references. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect. 
converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What, what advantage has the Jew? Well, they, they have the law. It's, 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 it's in their it's in their worship building. Not very many people own their own copy of the scripture. But they could go to their place of worship and they could read the law, which is perfect in converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 103, 17. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Anybody on planet Earth, in particular the Jews, but anybody who is longing for and looking for the mercy of the Lord, looking for his ways, they find it in his oracles. When they know his oracles and when they keep his oracles, they know and keep his words. Psalm 119.11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Jews, you've had the oracles of the living God that point you to the living God, that point you to redemption, that point you to wisdom, that point you to hope. Psalm 119.28, My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Jews, you have been given the greatest advantage in the world by having the oracles of God for strength in your weakness. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. God has given understanding to the Jews by his oracles if they would turn to them and if they would drink from them. Therefore, he says, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. The oracles of The living God gives sight to the blind. They give strength to the weak. They give understanding to the simple. They give conversion. What greater thing could God have given any people on earth? The stewardship. The stewardship of the Jew that I've very, very roughly outlined in maybe five or six verses is something that's been passed on to the church, isn't it? Isn't the church now the place where where the truths of God are kept, where they're stored, if you will? Is is not the church the place that, that the pillar and buttress of the truth is how Paul says it to Timothy? Isn't that where the oracles are now in the church itself? What an incredible... Honor, what an incredible, important responsibility and duty that has been now even passed on to the church. Now, this point is a silly point to someone who cannot be taught, someone who cannot be advised, and someone who has no admiration of God, someone who has no hope in His Word. This is a silly point. But to someone who knows, the value of God's love and God's truth, 
the value of God's light, the, the hope of conversion offered by God in his word, someone who knows that. Someone who realizes that in your hands, when you're holding God's word, you have the power of God and salvation in God's very word. The gospel is revealed here. Hope for eternal life is revealed here. Being a steward of the oracles of God is a great, great responsibility. Don't hide it under a basket, Christian. Don't leave God's word and and, and the things taught to you by his word hidden away somewhere where nobody can ever see by its light. No one can be encouraged and strengthened by its strength where nobody can be converted by the speaking of his word. Oh, this should honor you and I. It should have honored the Jew. So this is their chief advantage is they have been made stewards of the oracles of God. The next section is, is a little bit of a peculiar phrase here. It says, it goes on to say, What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And in other words, can the unbelieving show that God has been unreliable. This is kind of the, the, the question that Paul anticipates next, and I'll, I'll explain here. This is a little bit of a tricky passage here. Paul has raised this possible criticism. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Paul has raised this criticism to the point that he's making. He's been making the point that there's a great advantage in the Jews having the words of God. One of the things that I've learned in thinking through this little little point of Paul's argument is, is the objections that Paul is, is aiming at are not necessarily your objections. Sometimes he raises uh, an issue that, that isn't a strong one in your mind or heart. Um, so this may or may not speak to something that, is, that has challenged you. But listen carefully to, to what he is doing and what he's communicating here because he is, he is making a special argument against a special situation. He says, um, the, way we fi- the way you and I figure out verses 2 to 4 is based on the Greek word for faith. So look at verse 2. He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, is what it says in the New King James. What other word do you have? Mine says committed. Is anybody looking at a different word in your translation? Entrusted. Entrusted, okay. This root word is pistuo. And and I just... I'm. Again, it's not important that you and I necessarily know Greek, but I want to help you see that the thread connecting these verses together. The word is faith when it's a noun. If if the word faith is turned into a verb, what is it? Action. How, how, how do we how do we faith? What what do we use? Believe, right? So you have faith and believe. This one root word showing up. So. In verse 2, to them were committed the oracles of God. To them were faithed. They were faithed. 
the oracles of God, right? So we get the word committed to them were committed or over here entrusted. They were entrusted with the word of God. That's where we get the, the, the sense of this word. Now keep reading. For what if some did not? You see the word believe there? There's the same root word. Pistuo is the same root word. So what if some did not? Faith? Hmm, how does that work? To them were committed. And what if some did not? Let's say practice the commitment. What if some were not faithful? They were entrusted with it. What happens if they showed themselves to not be trustworthy? That's kind of how this is is unwinding. And, and the way we see it is by seeing that this is the same word. What if some proved to be false? What if some did not believe? That's I don't think that's the best way to word that. We could say, what if some were not faithful? What if they weren't trustworthy? Will their unfaithfulness make God's faithfulness without effect? That's the question. That's what's being put forth in this thing. What if some of the Jews who had been trusted with that word showed themselves to be untrustworthy? Doesn't that color God's omniscience and, and power and wisdom by giving something so important and so trustworthy to them and yet they failed to do it? Doesn't that mean that, that God isn't great and perfect? And, and the obvious answer is no, it, it can't mean that God's not great. It can't mean that God's not perfect. Therefore, it nullifies the first part of the argument. In other words, that can't really be the most important reason. That can't really be the chief reason that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God because they did a terrible job of it. And, and if they did a terrible job and God gave them that to do it, doesn't that mean that God did a bad job? That's how this argument flows. And what is Paul's answer to that? He says, no. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not how it goes. God has given a stewardship to the Jews. God has given a great stewardship to the Jews. So as we read there in verse 3, what if some did not believe, or let's, let's say, what if some did not prove faithful? Will their, where it says unbelief, will their unfaithfulness make the faithfulness of God without effect? And then he continues in verse 4, certainly not. That's, that's not what that would mean. That's a fallacy. It's wrong for you to believe that. Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. That's a quote from Psalm 51, 4. So what we want to see as we as we work on closing up our understanding of these first four verses in chapter 3, is that God's love and honors his favors at times come to a people who despise it or who, who treat it in a way that, that, that isn't appropriate for how great it was. In other words, God had done a great thing. He's done a glorious thing for the Jews and then finally to the church. 
that doesn't mean that the Jews were perfect stewards of it. And that doesn't mean that all congregations are, are perfect stewards of it. Most of the Jews rejected God's offer of peace in the Messiah. Most of the Jews, although possessing the oracles of God, ignored the oracles of God. They, they went after pagan gods. They went after pagan faith. And they wouldn't look to the coming of the Messiah with any kind of consolation in many, many, if not most, cases. And most of the Jews and much of the world, most of the world is lost in the unbelieving world of, of seeking pleasure and worldly aims and godless entertainment. But Christians, Christians have been given the word of God. Christians have been given the lively oracles is one of the translations that comes out of that reference in Acts. The living word of God. We've been given this great treasure and it's a great treasure because of what God has given to us in it. His very word has been entrusted to the people of God for their conversion, for their wisdom, for their comfort. And so as we think about how you and I might understand the the charge that is made to the Jew in the end of chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3, you and I can see ourselves in the same spotlight. Do you possess the Word of God? Do you have access to the oracles of God? Are you a steward of the Word of God? Are you a person who is working to understand how it speaks to your own life? Are are you forming your life and your ambitions according to his word, preparing for what the future brings? God's word has revealed the future where God comes again to judge the living and the dead, to seek his people who have put their faith in Christ. This is what we have in in the oracles of, of God. And the fact that some are poor stewards of it doesn't mean that this is not what he's about doing. So we're now preparing to have communion together. A few of us will have the bread and and drink the cup together.